Revelation chapter 2 this morning. I know some of you are interested and ask about the plan for studying the book of Revelation. And we call this part one. Uh, we're taking the book and dividing it up into sections because um, we were to just start at chapter 1, verse 1, and go to the very end with no breaks and no stops. It wearing me out and you as well. Uh, so we're doing part one. And part one will take us through the first three chapters. And we'll finish that, God willing, uh, this year. Uh, we'll, of course, have some breaks in there because we're going to be having a special rededication, baptism, membership service, and so forth, the Lord's Supper, uh, on that fifth Sunday of this month. And we'll also have a Thanksgiving service, and we'll have a Christmas-themed service. Uh, but we're going to finish up the first three chapters this year, uh, if all goes according to plan. And then as we get in 2015, we'll do a part two of the series, and we'll go through the book together. We'll find your spot this morning in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 12. I want to give you a word, and it's the word tolerance. Tolerance. So that's a loaded word, is it not? It's a word that uh, we hear a lot about in our culture and in our day. And I only bring it up because of where we find ourselves in our study on the book of Revelation. This morning we're considering the message, beginning at verse number 12, uh, that Jesus sent to the church at Pergamos or Pergamum. And in my study this past week, as I've been poring over these verses, I found Jeff Lassine's words about this particular passage very interesting. Would you listen to what he said? Our Lord's letter to the church at Pergamos brings us to the very relevant and hot-button topic of tolerance. It is a double-edged sword in the American church today that those churches that are tolerant of sin and false doctrines are spiritually weak but applauded by society. While those churches that are intolerant of sin or false doctrines are accused of being judgmental and narrow-minded. He writes, but given the choice of receiving the world's disapproval or the Lord's disapproval, I can live with the world's disapproval. By the way, beloved, we all face that very same choice. Our church faces that choice as well. And the question is, who are we going to disappoint? Whose disapproval are we going to bear? Will we stand for Jesus and live for him and stand for the truth, thereby guaranteeing disapproval from the world? Or will we side with the world and therefore break the heart of our Lord and Savior and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ? We cannot serve two masters. The Bible's clear about that. We cannot straddle the fence. Uh, we cannot tolerate everything. We cannot accept everything. There is absolute truth. And we find it right here in God's word. There are things that are absolutely, totally wrong. There are things that are absolutely, totally right. And where the Bible is clear, where God's word is clear, we need to be clear. We need to speak clearly. We need to stand clearly. We need to tell out the truth and do it in love. But the reality is when we do that, there will be those who will not join with us. And sad to say, but it's still the truth. Truth will bring division. And there are those who will not come along. And there are those who will not uh, follow along. And there are those who will not follow the truth. But as Adrian Rogers once said, it is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. We're to speak the truth in love. And we need to do that in our day especially, beloved. Is there so many mixed messages and wrong messages and things being pushed down the throats of Americans today? We need to be clear on where God's word speaks clearly. 
Beloved, if there was a vicious cancer growing in your body and that cancer could be treated, would you not want your doctor to tell you? I mean, would it not be more loving for her just to kind of conceal that from you and not tell you and just kind of hide it from you? No, that wouldn't be loving. That'd be cruel. That'd be wrong. That might even be immoral. Uh, certainly immoral. Might even be illegal. The most loving thing your doctor could do is for her to look at you and tell you all about the cancer. And tell you all about what's going on. And tell you about the treatment because only then would you have hope for healing. And beloved, hiding God's word from the world and hiding God's word from everybody else, that is not loving. The loving thing to do is present the truth of the word of God. Why? So they can find hope for healing as we present the truth of the word of God. Now, of course, underlying all this is a presupposition, and it's this, a belief that this is the very word of God, the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, inspired, without error in any part. And beloved, that is my belief personally and my conviction that this is God's word. And we've said as a church, this is our belief. This is our position that this is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. Beloved, I believe it from cover to cover. And I even believe the cover where it says Holy Bible. I believe this is God's word. Now, if this is the word of God, and it is, and this is the final authority for faith and practice, and it is, then there are some things that we're not going to be able to tolerate and accept when it comes to our church. We dare not tolerate and accept things when it goes against the clear teaching of the truth of the word of God. And this is serious business. This is not a side issue. This is not a non-issue. This is a serious issue today because I want you to see what the Lord Jesus says to this church at Pergamos. We're calling it the tolerant church. Uh, My Bible heading actually calls it the compromising church. Perhaps yours does as well. But that's the idea. Both of those things are true. They were tolerant. They were compromising. And both of those titles, I believe, are fitting. Well, let's hear what the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the Lord Jesus speaking to this church. These are his words to this local body of believers. And, of course, they apply to us as well. Revelation chapter 2, begin reading at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write... These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone... And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, beloved, if we're wise, we'll learn from this church at Pergamos and its mistakes rather than making the mistakes ourselves. That's a mark of wisdom, by the way. Look at somebody else's mistakes and learn the lesson. Don't make them yourself. And as a church, we look at their mistake and learn from it and not repeat it. And there's just four main things, four main truths I want to point out to you this morning. And these truths apply not only to our church corporately, but I believe they apply to us individually as well. 
apply to your own Christian life. You might want to jot these four things down. I'll give you some scripture as well, but you might want to jot the references down as we study through. But let me just give you the four lessons. Number one is this. Stand for Jesus in the midst of evil. Just real simple and plain. Stand for Jesus in the midst of evil. Now, Jesus in verse 12 is addressing the angel of this church. That is the messenger, literally. We believe the pastor of the church at Pergamos. And he draws attention as he addresses him in verse number 12 to the fact that in his mouth he has a sharp two-edged sword. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, we saw that two-edged sword in chapter 1. When we saw the vision of the glorified Lord Jesus in chapter one, verse 16, it says he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So we saw the sword of truth, the two edged sword in chapter one, verse 16. We find it here in chapter two, verse 12. We find it again in chapter two, verse 16, where he says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, we know this is the word of God. The word of Jesus, the word of the word. And in this sense, it's used in judgment. I'm going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, before Jesus elaborates on the judgment that he's threatening here, he takes a moment to commend these believers for their faithfulness. These believers lived in a tough place. Did you notice just how bad it was? Look again at verse 13. He says, like he does to all the churches, I know your works. Now, notice the next part. And where you dwell... Where Satan's throne is. Then come to the end of that verse. He says, where Satan dwells. Beloved, the church at Pergamos, the believers at Pergamos, they live where Satan's throne and home was. This was hell's headquarters. Satan had set up shop here in his base here. And and this is where he was in Pergamos. And this is where these believers were. This is where the church was. They were meeting at hell's headquarters, if you will. Now, I hope you know, beloved, understand that Satan or Lucifer, same person, is not a little red creature with horns and a pitchfork and a pointy tail that's on the deviled ham packages in the grocery store. You've seen those? I hope you know that's not Satan. He wants you to think that way about him. He wants you to think that's what he is and who he is. And I hope you also understand that Satan is still active. He's still alive. He's still uh, 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 walking about. He's not confined to hell at this moment. He's still very much present. In fact, we we learn about him in the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Why? Because Satan is not omnipresent. He's a created being. He's not everywhere in all of his being all at the same time like God is. He can't be everywhere at once. He has many helpers, but he's walking to and fro on the earth. We know the Bible calls Satan the God of this age. Second Corinthians 4, 4, whose mind the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We find that he's still walking about in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so he's still alive, he's still active, he's still present, he's still walking to and fro, he's still busy, And at this time in history, 
when this was written, he had set up his headquarters in Pergamos. Now imagine living at hell's headquarters where Satan's throne and Satan's home is. We think our world is evil today, and it is. And things are waxing worse and worse than they are. But imagine being right where Satan has set up shop and where he has his base and his headquarters. But did you notice that these believers, they were faithfully standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not deny the faith. In fact, he says there in verse number 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This gentleman by the name of Antipas, we don't know a lot about him. Some believe he may have been a pastor of the church, whatever. But uh, he was a gentleman there who was killed because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, beloved, there are still hills worth dying on. We better make up our minds what we're willing to die for and who we're willing to die for. You see, the church at Pergamos reminds us that we need to stand for Jesus in the midst of evil. They were living at hell's headquarters, yet they stood faithfully for the Lord Jesus and they stood faithful to death. And so we need to stand for Jesus in the midst of evil. Now, we, we all, I think, wish we could just stop right there and see a blessing on the church at Pergamos and move on. And we all wish that maybe we wouldn't have to read these next verses. But you see, the Lord Jesus, out of a heart of love, was not going to leave this church unwarned. He was going to deal with them. The loving Lord of glory warned this church. And we learn a second lesson here. We know we're to stand for truth in the midst of evil, stand for Jesus in the midst of evil. But secondly, we're to stand for the whole truth in the midst of false teachers. Stand for the whole truth in the midst of false teachers. So they're standing for Jesus in the midst of evil, yes, but they were not standing for the whole truth in the midst of false teachers. Verses 14 and 15. Notice the very first word of verse 14. He just commended them. You stood faithful for me. Antipas died for me. But what's the very first word of verse 14? But. But. But what, Lord? I have a few things against you. You see, they were faithfully standing for Jesus But they were not faithfully standing for the whole truth and nothing but the truth. They were tolerating false teachers in their midst. And two groups are mentioned. Those who held to the doctrine of Balaam and those who held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Stephen Lawson noted that if Satan can't defeat a church, he'll join it. If he can't defeat it, he'll join it. And that's what was going on here. These false teachers were coming into the church. And he mentions the doctrine of Balaam. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, you remember the story of Balaam. If you've studied the Bible in the Old Testament. Balaam, you remember, was the prophet out to make a prophet. Do you remember him? He's the one that had a conversation with his donkey. Remember him? And he went out and he was hired by the king of Balak to go out and curse Israel. But every time he would seek to curse them, remember what happened? He blessed them. And so he blessed them and blessed them and blessed them. And so what Balaam ended up doing was introducing by his counsel, the Israelites, to idolatry and immorality. You find the story of Balaam in Numbers 22 through 25. Let me just share with you what the first three verses of Numbers 25 says. Numbers 25, 1 through 3. Now Israel remained in the Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. By the way, one of our Southern Baptist scholars uh, at a convention, a conference I was at recently said that uh, we've been pronouncing that 
Baal wrong all these years. He's the president of Southern Seminary, very wise man, Albert Moeller. Talked about his Sunday school teacher growing up, always talked about Baal. He said it was actually Baal. And I listened to Dr. Moeller and said, hmm, I've always said Baal, I'm always going to say Baal. Anyway, he was joined to Baal of Peor. <laughs> he says, there's a Hebrew diphthong there. Well, I'm sorry, we're going to say Baal of Peor. Y'all say Baal too? All right, we're going to keep saying Baal. He's a false god. Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So Balaam could not curse Israel because God kept blessing Israel three times. But here's what Balaam did. And we find out what he did if you keep reading in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 31, we find out what Balaam did. He couldn't curse them, so he corrupted them by his counsel. Listen to Numbers 31, 15 and 16. And Moses said to them, Numbers 31, 15 and 16, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel, listen, through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. And so what he did is so he couldn't curse them. He said to King Balaam, here's what you need to do. Have the women go in and join with them and corrupt them and bring in immorality and idolatry. So you have the doctrine of Balaam. Then we have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We're not sure exactly who the Nicolaitans were, but we know that God is clear. He says that he hates their doctrine. Verse 15. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Galatians, which thing I hate. They were probably, there's two different thoughts there. Some think they were ecclesiastical and setting up the, the laity and, and, and the, 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 uh, those church leaders and the laity and so forth and, and bringing that structure in. But I, I'm inclined to think they were more of a Gnostic group. In other words, they were those who, who held to loose living. And uh, probably held to some of the very same things the doctrine of Balaam held to. Immorality and idolatry. Look at verse 14 again. But I have a few things against you because you hold there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Listen, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, idolatry, and to commit sexual immorality. So you have idolatry and immorality. And I think probably the Nicolaitans held with some of those same things. Now, here's the question. Where do we stand in our church and in our own personal lives when it comes to those things? Where do we stand when it comes to idolatry and when it comes to immorality? Well, a lot of you probably say, well, preacher, we deplore idolatry. And rightly so. God also hates idolatry. Worshipping something or someone else other than the Lord. Giving worship and honor to something or someone else other than God himself. But, you know, we say that, but let me ask you a question. What about the hidden idolatry in our hearts? What about those things we're putting before the Lord? What about those things that we're exalting? What about those choices we're making? You know, it's one thing to say we stand against something, but what are we living out in our lives? And as a church, do we truly deplore idolatry? Do we stand against it? And then when it comes to sexual immorality, where do we stand? That's a hot button issue in our, our world right now, isn't it? It's in our state. We just had the overturn of the marriage amendment, and now there's same-sex marriage, or a man can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman. And really, that ushers in all sorts of things. Then what does marriage mean? It really means nothing. Because it means everything. Why? Because you can marry whoever, whenever, whatever. And so we stand up and say, well, the Bible's clear on that. We believe that marriage is between one man, one woman for life. That's what our doctrinal statement affirms. Each member who joins here affirms that. We say we stand against that. We stand for marriage between one man and one woman. And rightly so. But what about the other sexual sins that are rampant in our world? 
What about sex outside of marriage? What about sex before marriage? What about cohabitation? What about pornography? What about lust? What about adultery? Where do we stand on those things as a church, as individuals? The scripture is clear. There's no gray area here. Let me give you four passages. Acts 15, 20. But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. So both things are mentioned there, idolatry and immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. First Corinthians six eighteen. flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Ephesians 5, 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. As it is fitting for saints. Did you hear that? Fornication. That's sexual immorality. That's all these things I just mentioned. Let it not even be named among you. Much less practiced. And so we can say, well, we stand for marriage. What about the other sexual immorality? Where do we stand on that? Now in our world, some would say, and even hopefully not in our church, some would say, hey, loosen up. Be tolerant. Chill out, man. Just relax. No. We cannot. Where God's word is clear, we must be clear. You say, oh, you're not very loving. Beloved, the most loving thing we can do is say, thus says the Lord. And lead people to hope for healing. And lead people to the Lord. We have to stand for the whole truth in the midst of false teachers. We've got to stand for Jesus in the midst of evil. There's a third thing here, and that's this. Repent immediately when you realize you're wrong. Repent immediately when you realize you're wrong. The Lord Jesus is speaking to the church and notice what he says in verse 16. Very strongly, very plainly. Verse 16, repent. Repent. What's the solution to sexual immorality? What's the solution for idolatry? What's the solution for sin? We find the solution is the word of God. And the word says to these believers, repent and don't dawdle. I like that word dawdle, by the way. He's with my boys a lot. Don't dawdle. Do it quickly. Don't delay one. Look at verse 16 again. Repent or else. Look what he says. I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And notice, notice what he says there. Repent or else I will come to you, the true believers, the true church. I'll come to you quickly and will fight against them. That is the false teachers with the sword of my mouth. Those who are bringing in falsehood. The true believers are being called upon to deal with the false teachers. Judgment needed to be exercised in the church. Judgment should begin at the house of God. And so we cannot allow false teaching. We cannot allow false teachers. We cannot allow immorality and idolatry and sin to run rampant in the church house. We're to deal with it and repent. And Jesus said to this believers, listen, I'm going to come to you quickly and I'm going to fight with them. I'm going to deal with them and judge them according to the sword of my mouth. Now, I know what happens many times, and I want to deal with this just a moment. Whenever you talk about standing for truth and being clear about it, people, they want to go to Matthew 7, and they want to quote Matthew 7. And Matthew 7 says, judge not that you be not judged. And they say, you should never be judgmental. You should never make a judgment call. You should never say anything's wrong, anybody's wrong, anything is wrong. We've got to understand something there in Matthew 7. Jesus is not teaching that we're to be undiscerning. That we're to just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to everything. That we never to make a judgment call. In fact, we're told in the Bible 
that we are to make judgment and make judgments. In fact, I want to give you six here. William McDonald in his Bible commentary gives these. I'll give it to you very quickly here. And there are some things we cannot judge. We don't know people's motives. There's some things we can't make a judgment. But there's some things that we're required. We have to make a judgment on these things. Let me give you just six of them real quick. I'll give you the scripture. If you want the list, I'll give it to you after church as well. Uh, We're told, first of all, uh, when disputes arise between believers, uh, let's say I'll pick on uh, Peggy and Betty. They just get a fall out, knock out, drag down, fight. And and they they have issues. and They're not going to go to the court of law, according to the Bible. They're coming for the church. When a dispute arises among believers, they should be settled in the church before members who could decide the matter. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. And so if you have two members come and they're going to be making a decision about who's right, who's wrong, what needs to happen, you have to make some judgments in that. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. The local church is to judge serious sins of its members and take appropriate action. This is in our bylaws. A church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Uh, we're to deal with those issues. We used to do that in the olden days. We don't do it as much anymore. Why? Because people don't want to deal with it. Third, believers are to judge the doctrinal teaching of teachers and preachers by the word of God. Talking about it here in this passage. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. 1 John 4, 1. Talks about making sure that what someone is teaching and preaching is the truth. You have to make a judgment on that. And make sure they're doing right. Listen, you say, well, I'm not, still not convinced. Well, listen to this one. 2 Corinthians 6.14. You have to discern if other people are believers not to obey Paul's command. What is Paul's command in 2 Corinthians 6.14? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't join together with unbelievers. And so you've got to make a decision, right? Well, who's a believer and who's not a believer? You say, well, the Lord knows the heart. Yes, we can be fruit inspectors and we can look at their lives as the scriptures laid out. <coughs> You make a judgment every year. Did you know that? You may not even realize that. According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and other passages, we have to judge which men have the qualifications to serve as an elder that is a pastor. You don't deal with that as much as you do the second one, and that is judge who is qualified to be a deacon. There are biblical qualifications laid out, and we give those to you. We give the passage. Every year we ask you as a congregation, would you recommend, I think it's three men, we ask you to recommend three men or whatever to serve. And we give you that scripture passage. And the scripture passage is to be a man not doing this and not doing that and should do this, should do that. And you have to make some decisions. Not in a condescending, judgmental way, but just to make a judgment call, looking at that man's life, does he qualify to serve? And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, we have to discern which people are unruly, faint-hearted, weak, etc., and treat them according to the instructions of the Bible. In other words, this whole argument that you can never make a judgment on anything is totally unbiblical. Because the Bible says, judge these things, make decisions, make judgments. And beloved, when it comes to when we find out that we're wrong, let's turn it back on ourselves. When we're wrong, personally, when we're wrong corporately as a church, we need to repent. So, preacher, what's repentance? To repent is a change of mind, which leads to a change of direction or a change of behavior. You're going one direction, you turn and go the other direction. You turn from those things that are wrong to that which is right. And we need to do it right away. We don't need to sit around and debate it and and dawdle about it and say, well, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. If the Bible is clear, we should be clear. We need to deal with it. Now, these are all vital lessons that we need to get down and get right. Let's be honest about it. This is heavy stuff. And it's hot in here. (laughs) You think this is hot? Hell's going to be a lot hotter, by the way. This is heavy stuff. 
I mean, this is not stuff you don't, you're not going to go out saying, oh, that was wonderful. It's like Joel Osteen was here today. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is heavy, heavy stuff. But here's the question. Where are you when it comes to standing for Jesus in the midst of evil? Where are you when it comes to the whole truth and standing for the whole truth? Where are you when it comes to repenting personally? Where are we as a church in repenting saying, listen, we've been wrong in these things. We need to get right about them. These are matters we dare not put off. We dare not someone pray about that. Listen, if you need to deal with them, you deal with them this very moment. Don't wait until invitation time. Don't wait until the closing song. Write down in your own heart, proud to the Lord. Agree with him and say, Lord, I repent. I'm sorry. I'm wrong on that. I changed my mind. Help me to change my direction. Change my lifestyle. Now, I love how the Lord Jesus ends this message to this church. Because I said this is heavy stuff. But he's going to end on a note of encouragement and a note of assurance. In fact, this is why as you're reading through, this is probably the verse you thought, what does that mean? He talks to the overcomers there in uh, the end of this passage. Look at what it says in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, here's the question. First of all, who are the overcomers? We've seen them before in the passages we've been studying. The overcomers, remember, are not super Christians. They're not, you know, they don't have a cape with a giant C on their chest where they, you know, we've arrived. No, the overcomers are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. All true Christians. If you're a Christian, you're an overcomer. First John 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So if you're a true believer today, what I'm about to talk about applies to you. And these gifts are for you. And the third, fourth point I want you to remember is this. Remember the good gifts that are waiting for you. Remember the good gifts that are waiting for you. I told you it's going to end on a positive note. Remember the good gifts that are waiting for you. Verse 17. Now upon reading that, it may sound a little bit strange. Jesus promised to give overcomers, those of us who know him, some wonderful things. First of all, we're going to get hidden manna. Secondly, we're going to get a white stone. And thirdly, on that, new, on that stone, a new name. Now you say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, it depends on which Bible scholar you read. What I mean by that is a lot of ideas, a lot of disagreement, a lot of things floating around with what these things mean. Let's try to understand it together. I think the first part is easier to understand than the second part. Let's talk about the hidden manna for a moment. Manna, you remember in the Old Testament, was that heavenly food that came down. They went out and collected and they ate. That was visible, physical, literal manna that they ate. Now here, the overcomer, the Christian, if you know the Lord, you're promised to be given the hidden manna. And I believe the hidden manna there is a reference to Christ, the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, Jesus says this about himself. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give him is my flesh, which I shall give him for the life of the world. In other words, Christ is our strength. Christ is our nourishment. And we're given to eat of the hidden manna, the bread of life, Christ himself. So we kind of understand that. But then what about this white stone? With a new name written on it. What's it all about? Well, as I said before, there are a lot of different ideas. But here's two of the main ones I found. 
Back in the day when this was written, a white stone was often put into a vessel, into a container uh, as a vote of acquittal to say someone was innocent. If there was a trial going on, the white stone mean, I, I believe he's innocent. I believe she's innocent. It was also used, a white stone was also used as a ticket to gain admission to a feast. And so you were given a white stone and you take that white stone and give it, you can enter into the feast. Warren Wiersbe said both would certainly apply to the believer in a spiritual sense. He's been declared righteous through faith in Christ and he feasts with Christ today, Revelation 3.20. And will feast with him in glory, Revelation 19.6-9. And so if that's the case and that white stone may picture the idea that we've been found innocent because of Christ and his righteousness and we're in Christ and we've been invited to the feast. And we've been given a new name on it. The Greek scholar Alfred is probably right in saying that the important point is the stone's inscription, which gives the believer a new name. And the new name, as you read there, says written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This special name, this intimate name given to us by the Lord Jesus indicates acceptance by God. And so if that's all correct, whatever exactly these things mean, I think we can very safely say they mean two things at least. They mean acceptance and assurance. We've been accepted and we've been assured. We've been given the hidden man of Christ himself. We've been given a new name, a special name. We've been given this white stone, probably representing the fact that we are accepted in Christ's righteousness and we're given admittance to the feast and to glory and to heaven. Now, beloved, if that is correct, isn't that what these believers needed? They were living as outcasts at hell's headquarters. They were rejected by the world, rejected by those who stood for Satan. And they needed acceptance and they needed assurance. And beloved, is that not what we need today? I mean, it's not always easy to stand. It's certainly not popular to stand. But beloved, we must stand. We must be faithful to God and to his word. We must stand for the truth, stand for Jesus, stand for right, stand for righteousness, repent when needed and repeat when necessary. We've got to be faithful to the Lord and to his word. We cannot tolerate everything in order to be accepted and loved by the world. We must stand for the truth and we must speak the truth. How? In love. But speak it nonetheless. Speak the truth. Now I want to close with some much needed words from Pastor John MacArthur. And I want you to hear this, church. He says the goal of the church is not to provide an environment where unbelievers can just feel comfortable. You know, that's going on today. They're building churches and ministries around what people want. That's wrong from the get-go. By the way, the church is not ours, it's his. He's, it belongs to the Lord. He's the Lord of glory. He's the one in the midst of the church. and He's the one who says how the church should be. He says, the goal of the church is not to provide an environment where unbelievers can just feel comfortable. It is to be a place where they can hear the truth and be convicted of their sins so they can be saved. Romans 10, 13 through 17. He says gently, lovingly, graciously, yet firmly. Unbelievers need to be confronted with the reality of their sin and God's gracious provision through Jesus Christ. He says, and I close with this, sin will never be suppressed by compromising with it. If we accept it and tolerate it, it's not just going to go away, it's going to grow. Just as it's going to happen in this church. If they don't deal with it. So we must deal with sin. May God help us to be faithful. That will stand for the truth. That will speak it in love. That will repent personally and corporately when needed. And having done all to stand for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus. And speak the truth in love. 
in a world filled with evil and false teachers. Father, it is with a grateful heart that we bow in your presence. And Lord, we've, we've dealt with some things here today of a very serious nature. Lord, we see our world waxing worse and worse. And we see the opposition rising up more and more. Or we, we must make a decision of where we're going to stand and how we're going to stand. Lord, I pray that you'll help us always to stand for Jesus and stand for the truth. Lord, to do it with a heart of love and compassion. To seek to reach people with the gospel. To bring hope of healing to their lives. But Lord, even when we're hated and maligned and persecuted and laughed at and mocked and jeered and assaulted. I pray that you would help us to look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, I pray if there's any area in our life, whether it be personal or corporately as a church, that needs to be dealt with, I pray for repentance. I pray that you would help us to agree with you and turn from our wicked ways and seek your face. Father, we thank you for these good gifts that you've mentioned. And Lord, we, we, we are trying to understand them as best as possible. But thank you for the hidden manna and this special white stone with a new name. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your acceptance and your assurance. Thank you for being our Savior and Master and Lord. Bless, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It's there on your song sheet. We'll stand and sing. If you have a prayer, you need to come pray today. There's an altar. We'll use this cue uh, back here as an altar to come and pray today. As we think about these things and as we sing, aren't you glad we have Jesus as our friend, our Savior, and our Lord? We carry these things to him. Let's stand and sing. What a friend we have in Jesus. Thank you.